1: Most weeks in Civil War talk radio, we look behind the curtain of Civil War scholarship, talking with authors about how they write their books and where they do their research. But the archives where they work don't maintain themselves, so today we're looking behind the curtain, behind the curtain, talking with archives specialist Jackie Bedell of the Digitization Division of the Research Services at the National Archives. She'll talk with us about her work on personal tintypes discovered in pension files and other things tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry
1: Prokopovich, coming to you, as is often the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, But as always, speaking only for myself, not representing the university or the university system or anybody, not the history department, no one, just me. but unlike most weeks, uh, this week our guest uh, actually will be speaking not just for herself, but for the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA. Uh, I think that might be a first to have someone with some sort of authorization here on the show. Um, we'll see how much trouble we can we can generate out of that. Uh, it has... Uh, I'm I'm pausing as I talk to you because Skype has rolled out a new beta screen tonight, or at least since last week's show, and instead of the screen I normally see on on my monitor. That tells me when we're approaching a break. I get messages from uh, the engineers at uh, at Voice America, uh, and uh, tonight uh, the the screen is a different color and a different design. so Skype is doing that testing, and it uh, it's like when Sports Illustrated used to change their uh, mast at every couple years or so, they would change the, the typeface or something, and you'd get a bunch of angry letters from people, oh, I liked it the old way, and then a week later, you'd have forgotten it was ever different. Uh, so I'm, I'm right now shaking my fist at the new screen, and next week, I will have forgotten it was ever anything else. Uh, I hope I will have forgotten about last week in sports here at ECU. It was dismal. The baseball team lost all three games on their opening weekend. Star pitcher is still suspended for an undisclosed reason. Uh, basketball team lost on a buzzer beater, and some Sunday, it was just all grim. On a more positive note, I was happy to see the United States Women's National Team and the U.S. Soccer Association reached agreements this past week on... uh, working conditions and equal pay, considering that the women have won the World Cup four times and Olympic gold four times, the men last reached the semis of the World Cup in, I believe, 1930, Uh, you'd think it'd be the men who'd be begging all along for equal pay uh, to reach the women's level, but it's been the other way for some reason. Now it looks like they're getting that straightened out, so uh, good news all around there. But the big news here at Civil War Talk Radio is not the world of sports or even the world of the Civil War. It's it's one word, just one word. Are you listening, Ben? Merch. Civil War merchandise is here. Uh, you can go to the Facebook page, Impediments of War. And you can see the message there, and the link posted by Mark Gaffney, who maintains the page, that will take you to the Civil War Talk Radio storefront at tpublic.com. This is in response to—I was going to say dozens, but perhaps tens, maybe even three is a more accurate number of requests have come in over the years asking for uh, a chance to buy a Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt and show when you go to the round table or you go to Civil War Institute or Battlefield Tour, wherever you're going, uh, to show th- that uh, that you listen to Civil War Talk Radio and uh, perhaps meet others who do the same. Now you can get a shirt or, uh, or other things the, the way this website works is that they, they put the logo that I've chosen for this year, which features uh, General Sherman and his boombox uh, listening to Civil War talk radio. Uh, you, you, you see the logo, and then you click on the side and you can get uh, a whole bunch of different things, t-shirts or long sleeve t-shirts or hoodies and so on. Uh, I choose which things they actually will manufacture. Uh, that is, you can get T-shirts, uh, but where there's a button for tank tops, you can click on that, but nothing will happen because no one listening to Civil War talk radio should be wearing a tank top. I think that's that's pretty self-evident. Uh, so I, you cannot get the logo on that. But you can get it on on t T-shirt or a coffee mug. Or a refrigerator magnet, or any other useful thing that that's on the left column. When you click on the link at the Impediments of War Facebook page, that's where uh, uh, that that'll take you to T Public. I would tell you the link directly, but it's it's one of those long strings of, of characters. We'll get it put up eventually on the uh, impedimentsofwar.org website as well, and you can click there, and that'll take you there. Either way. Uh, uh, once you've clicked in, then you're at Tea Public and buy some merchandise if you want and don't if you don't. Um, just as your your generous contributions to Civil War Talk Radio are not tax deductible and are just a way of showing appreciation, and and I I really appreciate your your doing that. Uh, likewise, the merchandise. Uh, It's not necessary to put food on the table here at Civil War Talk Radio, Uh, but if you want to wear the shirt, uh, there it is. So uh, let's move on from from, uh, crass merchandising uh, to reminders about who's coming up on the show next week. Uh, Next week, it'll be March of 2020. No, 2022. I just lost two years uh, there. It's 2022, and... A week from today will be March 2nd. Laurie and Foote will rejoin us here at the show. Her new book is called Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. March 9th will be spring break. No classes here at ECU. I'll be catching up on grading and writing book reviews that I promised I would have turned in last week and doing other things and wearing my Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt, no doubt, as I bask in the sun here in North Carolina. You can do the same. But we'll come back on March 16th. Uh, Christopher Thrasher, author of Suffering in the Army of Tennessee, A Social History of the Confederate Army of the Heartland, from the Battles for Atlanta to the Retreat from Nashville. It's a mouthful, but promises to be an excellent book. So lots coming up. Join us there. And join us tonight. You are already here as we talk with Jackie Bedell of the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, the National Archives for short. Uh, Jackie, welcome to the show.
3: Yes. Hello, Jerry. Thanks very much. I am very sorry, though, that I'm not here in a Civil War talk radio tank top because it's well. been a very unusual. <laughs> 77 degrees in Washington, D.C. today. So wow. that might have come in handy.
1: That would be the thing. If if tank tops were available, I would make exceptions for some people, I suppose. But um, the the standard body type that I model, and I have many listeners, I'm afraid, do the same. Just no. There 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 should be a federal regulation about certain people in tank tops. Uh, but
3: all right, uh, we'll go with the t-shirt next
1: time. <laughs> so so you are uh, you're in Washington. You're you're first. I was trying to remember be. Before we start, well, let me say this. You're working for the National Archives. Uh, I have talked to people who worked for the federal government before on the show. In some cases, they've told me, don't say what I do. Uh, don't say anything or I'll get in trouble. Um, you have taken time to get cleared. Your boss knows you're here. We're talking legitimately about your work at the National Archives. Uh, but it's a different world working for the federal government in history than it is for a university, I imagine.
3: Yes, and my job is to support every citizen of the United States, no matter the reason they come to research at our building. And I'm I'm at the original building on Pennsylvania Avenue, though I have worked before at the College Park facility as well. Um, right. so, yes, we, we are the, the ones to support every citizen, whether genealogist, historian, scholar, uh, curiosity seeker.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, one thing I remember in my visits to the National Archives many years ago in the pre-internet era was how many people visiting there seemed to be uh, sort of freelance researchers. That, that if, if I'm doing research and I'm living in uh, Arizona, I can't necessarily fly to D.C. For, for, to look something up. You've got people who will do that. Uh, on a a sort of freelance basis, you you contact them in D.C., they'll actually go in and do the research for you. So do you you get a lot of people doing other people's research?
3: Yeah, we actually do. Um, Well, authors, sometimes depending, will have a whole Mm -hmm. team of researchers they send ahead of them. We support teams of researchers that support television programs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um and and then there are those that are just hey, I'm here in town and so if you need a file and you need it quickly, they can kind of do that in a day.
1: So if if I'm visiting Washington on a uh, uh, you know, business trip, doing something else. Uh say I'm not a, an academic, I'm just there. Uh, doing doing something unrelated, and it occurs to me, I'm really interested in the Civil War. What if I decide to stop in the National Archives and to see what kind of stuff is there? This is a big enough question that I'm going to pause here and we'll take a break and come back and I'll, and just ask you about what what the visitor, Needs to go through what they can expect and so on. What the routine is. What happens on your first visit there. We'll ask that question to our guest tonight, Jackie Boudal, who is a archives specialist at the National Archives in Washington. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to G at ECU dot E-D-U. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: and Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Jackie Bedell of the National Archives and Records Administration. We were talking about uh, who goes to the National Archives uh, to look for Civil War material. And Jackie, my, my question is if I just drop into Washington, D.C., is it like a public library? Anyone can just walk through the door and sit down? Or do you need a reservation? Is there a security process? What goes on?
3: Well, there is a security process, for sure, being a federal building. Um, but, so they will have you proceed through the magnetometers, which I think is pretty standard for any um, federal building. Um, but then you'll be greeted by a team of pretty experienced folks in the research room. And if you're interested in looking and handling original material, they will ask you to get what we have is just a plastic um, identification card, which is your official researcher card. Just requires watching a short video, which kind of um, fills you in on some of the document handling guidelines for the material in our building. Um, And then we actually have a whole team of reference archivists. And so when you get beyond the initial line of kind of folks that are the Q&A folks, then you can sit down with an archivist with a very specific topic, and they'll kind of direct you to the Army reference archivist or perhaps the Navy or civil records. And so we have different poll times throughout the day. And so as long as you have enough time between the time you arrive and the time you leave, for us to get pulled material to the um, reading room, then you can go up to the second floor, and the material will be delivered to you there. So it's um, it's always interesting when people say to me when they find out where I work that they feel like they're not allowed to handle that material, and it's exactly the opposite. Every citizen. It's it's their privilege to handle that material. And any material, obviously, there's, there's closed collections for, you know, personal or proprietary information for living individuals, but of course, with mm-hmm. Civil War material, those guys are all gone. Obviously, the families are gone. So you as a citizen can see any pension file, let's say, or Civil War service record um, for anybody.
1: So, in some cases, you're actually handling, say, you know, morning reports from a, a regiment, or, or uh, oh, a letter. Absolutely.
3: Yep. The regimental field books are um, fascinating. They're the actual books that were in the field with the units, so they would contain the morning reports, the descriptive lists. Um, you can handle hospital records. Um, those, that's original material. Civil War service records for individuals have transcription cards that are um, abstracted information from the original muster rolls because some of the muster rolls, which are <laughs> a huge size and are folded are pretty fragile, so we might mm-hmm. have to um, say, "Hey, we, you know, that's kind of off limits because of of the condition of the record." But mm-hmm. an individual service record for a soldier is a combination of transcripted material, which was um, collected by. The Adjutant General's office and transcribed starting in 1890, but it also includes what we call personal papers for most soldiers, and those are the actual original documents from the war.
1: Wow, it's hard to express the the feeling uh, that, that one gets, the the uh, associative value of of touching something from. 1863 and holding it in your hand um, when I worked in a museum you know we got to do that regularly I'm just wondering does it do you become jaded do you get do you get to the point where you say oh here's another spectacular rare record from 1863 that's what I do every day
3: well I, you know I believe there's there's always a reverence that the staff has in handling material but uh-huh. you know you are um you kind of get comfortable with it over time, but we're never too comfortable. So we always make sure that on a yearly basis, everyone gets refresher training when it comes to document, document handling. And we work really closely with a really brilliant team of conservators, and those are the, the folks that actually guide us in making sure that we're handling everything safely. And in my case, since we're digitizing the records, we have to make sure that all the camera operators... In particular have really good document handling skills because of course your objective is to try and get an image of every single unique piece of information on that piece of paper. Um, And that's not always so easy with 19th-century material because um, they're just overflowing with fasteners, which is one issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Before the invention of the paperclip, you know, their favorite office supply was glue. So there's plenty plenty of text that's been obscured by glue. So if Uh. you are dealing with a set of records that's not being prepared for digitization, you kind of have to do the best you can to see what you can. But the good thing about digitization is that we have a period where we're actually what we call prepping the record series. And so the conservators, which are assigned to a particular project that we're on, will take all of the documents that we flagged for issues like fasteners or glue, or probably the most prevalent issue are um, tears. Because a lot of the material for its lifetime has lived in a tri-folded condition, and just from being handled, of course, it's going to tear along all the weakened fold lines in a document. So we mend thousands of tears and in, in thousands of pages before we digitize at a camera to make sure that everything is readable. So the actual process of digitization is, is making the ability to access that information better, and of course, Mm -hmm. we can retire material once it's digitized and keep it from being handled over and over again, um, just to preserve it for the future. But for the most part, there are billions of pieces of paper just in my building alone, and we've, you know, digitized a fraction, though our efforts in that regard are accelerating greatly because, of course, the whole world wants to be able to access. The pandemic has shown us how critically important it was for us to be able to make sure that we had digital collections available to everybody. So there's always this kind of balancing act every day between preservation and access. You want to give people access, but we, of course, have to make sure that the material will be there tomorrow for the next generation to access.
1: I can certainly relate to that again from museum experience. That my office was next to that of our uh, our, our collection specialist, She was conservator mm-hmm. and and, and uh, many wore many hats. But if I had my way, all the stuff would be out all the time for researchers and uh, for interpretation and exhibition. And if she had her way none of the stuff would be out any of the time you would always be in a dark uh climate controlled box somewhere and of course we compromised and things got exhibited and things were used for research and other things got conserved but but we had very different views of of what would the priority was so, so you must have that same constant where, where do you fall on that spectrum between let's conserve everything and preserve everything, and let's let's use and interpret and, and research everything.
3: Well, it probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you I was right down the middle, um, <laughs> and and also wouldn't surprise you if I told you it kind of depends on what it is. <clears throat> um, I. I mean, I look at it this way, I I, I started in digitization in 2009, Oh, goes back a ways now. That was the point where we were really at the archives just um, starting to wrap our head about around what it would take to to do a good digital collection. Because it's one thing to, you know, put a lot of pieces of paper under a camera and keep clicking, and it's another thing to approach it carefully and make sure that you're giving the researcher a digital surrogate, meaning that the experience of looking at the digital copy is the same as if they were sitting in the reading room on the second floor looking at that piece of paper. And so I found that most researchers just want to be able to see every unique sliver of information from that document or set of documents. And if we accomplish that and they gained confidence That we were doing good quality control. And when I say quality control, that's immediately after it comes from the camera, but also after it's online, because a lot can happen every time you transfer images. We just needed to make people confident that we had a good process and we had thought it through in advance. And basically covered all of our bases, mm-hmm. and we've worked so hard in the last well, it's almost 20 years now um, that I'm really proud of the collections that we've done. And I have to believe that most researchers are researchers are getting more comfortable with things being digital than saying I only want to see the paper.
1: Um one well, another user question is as we were talking about digitizing in in the pre-internet era, when you when you looked at when a user looked at these things, they would take notes on paper with a pencil uh, of what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And in some cases you could photocopies of some things could be made, others couldn't. Uh, now can can I take pictures with my phone of a document that I'm looking at in the reading room?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So-
1: so people And phones
3: are great, people use them all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and it makes it kinda makes me happy because nineteenth century material on a flatbed photocopy machine is mm. a horrible thing to watch. <laughs> if it hasn't been prepped I can guarantee you that there's a stack of papers that's glued in the corner. 10 pieces of paper all with glue or they've been um, tied up with government red tape or ribbon if you've heard of the famed government red tape I mean that's a real thing and they would intricately lace you know pieces of paper together with a ribbon and if you try to turn the pages and flatten them on a photocopier you're doing really great damage and if there's text written all the way to the margin you know you you stand Hmm. the chance of losing information so I'm kind of happy to see someone use a phone. That's fine. Any just simple uh, digital camera is also fine.
1: So l- let's talk about the things you're actually working with. In, in the introduction, I mentioned uh, pension records and tin types. Uh, mm-hmm. d- this is something that you're specializing in now, is that correct?
3: Well, my day is kind of divided between what I call long-term digital projects, which, you know, we're, we're digitizing every single file in one record series in sequential order. Mm-hmm. And then we spend, obviously, some time doing special projects, and I would kind of define these as individual items or artifacts or things that come along that need special processing, because I work in, a, in the, what we call the processing field, if you will. This is. which is different than the research room. So the 10 types would fall into the special projects category. So as in pension files are usually where we find them. That's record group 15, which is the records of the Department of Veterans Affairs. In the old days, that was the pension bureau. So if someone finds any let's call it photographic image that contains metal or glass, it is um, funneled to to my office. And so it would come to my desk for processing. And so So what we've just...
1: There were actual metal or glass... Artifacts, uh, f- photographs in these, what I picture as folders of pension records?
3: A mm-hmm. well, pension file, um, to use that example, comes in a big uh-huh. envelope. That's how it's uh-huh. filed. And so they're the working papers of the government. And in those days, it was just considered um, evidence in a file. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was submitted by a claimant looking for a pension. And so it just gets kind of... Um, put in with the papers of the file. And a tintype, of course, is an image on, it's actually sheet iron, um, but it also would include, the scope of the project includes daguerreotypes and ambrotypes, and daguerreotype is, is an image on copper. Mm-hmm. Um, Ambrotype is an image on glass. Wow. And so, not only are they very valuable, but of course, it's very risky Um, You know, you don't want to damage it. Even the oil on your fingers can damage the emulsion on a tintype, for example, um, in just a few seconds. Wow. So we realized, this is over a decade ago, that, you know, these things needed to be kind of taken from the file. We now put them in what we call our vault for specially protected holdings. and. We also realized that these are really fascinating and useful, one-of-a-kind, priceless items for every historian out there, And whether they're looking at just, hey, it's my great-grandfather, or they're somebody doing a regimental history, or somebody just um, doing a book who appears on your show about Gettysburg. Everybody wants to see these images. So with that in mind, we decided to um, embark on this big project to not only preserve them in the vault, but to digitize them and make them available on the online catalog so they're fully searchable within their file and item descriptions on the catalog now.
1: So so was this something that people knew, or or the idea that you would find a a glass image or a metal image within a folder is not what I would expect if I were... Uh, in the research room and and someone brings me a box of documents to look through, I'd expect paper. Uh, But I guess people find unexpected stuff all the time.
3: Oh, you'd be amazed. (laughs) (laughs) I have, just in the time I've been there, um, have seen artifacts that have just Blown me away as part of a pension file. It just—it's incredible. Though people, it does get around. Word is around in the genealogy community, for example, that oh, if you can find a, a photograph and a pension file for your ancestor, that—that that is like what you really want to hope for when you go to that building. Um, so I think that's the unspoken hope of everybody that that asks for a pension file, but. Um, we've had some pretty surprising finds, um, and what, they always usually get written to... uh, written up on Facebook or somewhere. But this uh, is a way to instead of it just being on Facebook, is to have it be a part of the catalog so that everybody can use it. And I guess right. you're going to want some examples of that, huh?
1: Absolutely. In fact, let's <laughs> let, let's tease the audience. We'll come back. Uh, uh, in in uh, well, actually, I'm looking ahead. I'm seeing one minute. No, seven. We have time to talk. I do want. I can't wait. Tell me uh, what what have you found that uh, that sticks in the memory?
3: Well. Um, I didn't specifically first find the moleskin, but that is probably the thing that gets talked about the most on the Internet. And by Mm. moleskin, I mean the critter you might find in your yard, which is Mm -hmm. M-O-L-E, moleskin. Right. So there is a pension file that included a taxidermied moleskin in which um, was a gentleman serving in a colored troops unit. And it was kind of a joke that he mailed it back to his wife, saying, "'Look who I share my tent with,' is what he wrote in his letter. And he included the moleskin. And so this African-American widow was trying to prove, as you have to, that you're married to the soldier that you're trying to collect the pension from his service. And so she had included the letter in the moleskin when she submitted her application, saying, "Look, he addressed his letter to dear wife, and he even included this joke in this letter. I mean, so I am his wife, um, but we never would have expected to find a wow. moleskin. So that's that's one example. And so if you, I had to think of, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, 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 please."
3: So the one there's one that, that happened kind of on my watch later mm-hmm. on, and that was the case of um, a woman who, her name was uh, Esther Springfield, and she had five kids when her husband died at Cold Harbor, and I think he served with the 69th Pennsylvania. Her pension file had a swatch of fabric that was cut from her apron, The thing is that it was cut from her apron after she was dead and buried Mm -hmm. for many years. And it was this whole story, I mean, I just couldn't wait to get to the story in this file. She was collecting a pension for a good 20 years, and the pension office got a tip that there were unscrupulous pension agents working in the Philadelphia office, which is where Esther lived. So they had reason to believe that these agents were collecting Esther's money after she was dead. So they went mm-hmm. about interviewing her son and some neighbors and the people that she lived with. And it turns out that nobody had seen her since, um, I think it was 1882, and she was living as a lodger with a woman named Sarah Jane McCloskey. I always remember the name. Mm-hmm. and so. When she got her pension payment this one year, she got her money, and then, now remember, it's a time where you needed your pension certificate to get your money. You needed the piece of paper. And she pawned her certificate, and she was known to buy alcohol with her money. So she told her neighbor that day she was walking to Jersey, and then she was never seen again. So all of the lodgers living at Mrs. McCloskey's house were reading the newspaper several days later. They find this article about a woman's body being pulled from the Delaware River, and they read the description, and they know that it sounds just like Esther. But nobody goes to the morgue to identify her body, so they bury her in a pauper's grave in Potter's Field. So apparently she really didn't keep touch with her children So she was really quickly forgotten until these pension agents started this investigation. And they wanted to prosecute these criminal agents for collecting Esther's money by basically taking her certificate and getting her money. So they retrieved the pension certificate, but they also needed to positively identify her corpse in order to have a case against these guys. So in the pension file, there's a coroner's order, To have her body exhumed from the grave and attached to the order is this piece of fabric that was really cut from her corpse. And they took Sarah McCloskey to Potter's Field and they asked her to identify the fabric as being that that Esther was wearing the last day that they saw her when she disappeared. And Sarah said that, yes, that was the apron she wore, so that they were able to stamp her file dead, and then they were able to prosecute those criminal agents.
1: Wow. Wow. it's like a CSI uh, pension fund. Civil War, right? Uh, Civil War. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, unexpected things, I guess, happen all the time. Is If I look through enough pension records, will I eventually come across a previously unknown scrap of paper uh, granting clemency and signed by Abraham Lincoln to the soldier involved? Uh, Is a Lincoln document hidden somewhere in there, do you think?
3: There could be, because on my watch, we found a Walt Whitman document that nobody knew about. Hmm. And I always thought, that'll never happen. It will never happen. And then, of course, one day, it happened. So we found a Walt Whitman letter. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: He used to write for the soldiers, as you probably have talked about on Mm -hmm. your show, as a volunteer in the hospitals. But as many times as he did that, there's not a lot of evidence that he did that as, as a scribe. Right. And so when we came across a Walt Whitman letter... It was for a soldier from Clinton County, New York, and he signed the letter at the bottom written by Walt Whitman, a friend. The letter was to uh, Nelson Jabot, the soldier's wife. And when we found it, we I knew right away I had to get it authenticated, so we got a Whitman mm-hmm. scholar to do that. But it turns out it is one of only three Whitman-scribed letters that are known to survive the whole Civil War.
1: Wow. It just And it, I had is, no
3: idea. <laughs> no idea. Amazing. It made news around the globe. Our it, phone it is, rang off the hook. It was and it's such an astounding find. So it for a Lincoln document or a Lincoln related document to appear, I, I will never say never. <laughs> ever again. Uh,
1: that, that gives us all hope as we, as we do our research. We're going to take another short break and come back talk more with our guest tonight, Jackie Budell of the National Archives and Records Administration, the National Archives in Washington, D.C. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our expert
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome
1: back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Jackie Bedell of the National Archives. We've been talking about the things that you find in pension records, the, uh, the, the envelopes full of evidence that were sent to the government to try to explain why a widow or uh, descendant deserved a, a veteran's pension after the Civil War. And uh, it turns out all kinds of things, uh, including you know, photographic images on glass, on metal, types, amber types, daguerreotypes, all kinds of things are in these envelopes on occasion. And, and Jackie, you've been telling us stories about these. Uh, your work supports the the work that writers are doing, that researchers are doing. But you write some yourself. Uh, you've got a, a, a series of blog posts about some of these very interesting things you find. Where can readers find that?
3: I, well, I do. I I, um, I think my interest in history was always born of, of wanting to be a storyteller, and since mm-hmm. every box in the archives is just packed with stories, I always said the world just needs more storytellers, so I'm really mm-hmm. happy to be one of those storytellers, um, which kind of is an aside to all the work that has to happen during the day, but it is a really enjoyable part of what I do. And the blog that I've been writing for is called the Text Message Blog. And if anyone visits our archives.gov website and they just go to the top right-hand corner and click on Blogs, you will see a good 12 or 15 choices there. So, the National Archives spans, of course, all of the presidential libraries are included in our system, and we span buildings coast to coast. So depending on your interest, you can probably find a blog that will um, intrigue you, and so hopefully people will check that out. Um, the tin types in particular, um, I'm starting to, uh, to write a whole series of those, hopefully. Um, so the next one to come out will feature the tin types that show... Um, amputees because of course tin types were great evidence that soldiers sent in as um, proof of their war injury so what I mean what better way to demonstrate um, what your injury looks like than to include a photographic image so um, so the next set of um, of stories, I think, will be really fascinating to people because I will see a face that comes across my desk, and you'll have no idea what that life turned out to be in the years after the war until you kind of start digging into it. Um, so I hope readers will join me in kind of exploring some of those.
1: Can Can you share one of those stories with us that you've uncovered, that you've written about in your blog?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, we'll give them a sneak peek. So one of the guys (laughs) that I was very interested in, um, Sergeant Luke Kelly, um, he was an amputee. He lost his arm all the way at the shoulder joint, and Luke Mm. served with the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry. And so remember, these are personal photographs, so it's not like he's dressing up in his Sunday best for these pictures. I mean, they're literally showing you what lay beneath their Mm -hmm. shirt sleeves. And, of course, there were a good 21,000 amputees that survived the war, so he was just one of those. There was congressional legislation that was passed in 1886 that increased pension rates for soldiers who lost a limb. And if you were not able to wear an artificial limb, you had a higher pension rate under that law. So it generated a lot of paperwork from a lot of amputees. And in addition to photographic evidence, of course, there would be um, a lot of um, affidavits and surgeons' reports and witness testimonies and also personal statements from these guys themselves. So these are primary documents that kind of show you, you know, as these amputees aged, what their lives were like. And so really, really fascinating to read. Um, Luke Kelly's parents came from Ireland. He was not born in Ireland. He was born actually in Bath, Virginia, which is now West Virginia. Um, But the family eventually put down roots in Providence County, Rhode Island, and Luke was attending school when the war broke out. But he was one of the first guys to enlist in his area in June of 61, and he served in nearly every engagement with the Army of the Potomac for the next three years. Up until the Battle of the Wilderness, and um, that's when his sacrifice changed his life, Um, he was there on the first day of that fighting. And as I understand it, there was 12,000 soldiers that were wounded in that three-day battle. So he was one of 12,000. But his surgeon had described his injury, and he was... um, he was describing that when the musket ball entered the bottom or the, the lower part of his arm, it passed along the humerus bone, and it splintered it all the way up to the the shoulder joint, which you can hardly imagine. Um, so he amputated Luke's arm in the field division hospital, and the musket ball itself actually went through his armpit, and it was buried in the muscle of his um, breast. So it was a really extreme injury. Mm. Um, another doctor that was describing what he saw when Luke came to his office, he said, you know, a stump, if you can call it, is mm. too short. And it really disqualified him from ever having an artificial limb. So he hardly had any stump at all. But he was, you know, sent home and he had to try and come up with a new life as a a disabled civilian basically after the war. So he took his widowed mother and they ended up relocating from Rhode Island to Wisconsin. And he met a woman there named Annie who became his wife. And um, despite his disability, um, they were farming and then they up and moved to Missouri. But all of the surprising enterprises that Luke engaged in besides farming is what really intrigued me. Um, He served as the county assessor and then he was um, twice elected the county treasurer when they got to Newton County, Missouri. But I was really surprised when I read a local history of Newton County and it said that he was serving in 1880 as a census enumerator. So for anyone who's seen, have seen census records, Um, you must know that they're all handwritten records. Mm -hmm. And it would require walking from house to house, traveling the county to record this information. And so Luke Kelly was a census enumerator. He enumerated himself and his own family first, believe it or not. Hmm. But he adapted to that work with one arm and maybe retrained himself because he was of such a young age to naturally write with his left hand. But you still had to have a lot to carry when you're going from house to house to do that work. But you can look at the 1880 census for Benton County, Missouri, and you'll see, you know, his impeccable hand handwritten pages, you know, page after page after page, all signed with his name at the top. Wow. So if that wasn't surprising enough, then... And, and poor Annie, because I felt like she was doing a lot of work, too. They had eight sons, because his will is in the pension file, and all eight sons are listed on the will. His last son was born in Washington, D.C. So it turns out that the next move that they make is to, is to the nation's capital. So the biggest surprise was then what came next. So I have no idea why he chose to go there, except maybe he had a career opportunity. But what that turned out to be is he wanted to join the federal government workforce, just like me. Mm -hmm. So he's appointed as what they call an assistant compiler. And the office that he's assigned to is the Rebellion Records Office of the War Department. So this office was responsible for publishing the 70 volumes of this very long title, right? The War of the Rebellion, a compilation of the official records of the Union and Confederate armies, which is 70 volumes about all the firsthand land warfare accounts of the war. and your listeners and, and certainly all of your guests are probably very familiar with this publication is simply called The O.R.
1: The O.R., absolutely. The O.R.
3: And so so he, Kelly he helped
1: to compile that.
3: Helped to compile The O.R., <laughs> huh. which I found to be astounding as a researcher myself.
1: Um, yeah, it brings full circle from being someone written about as participating in the wilderness and then...
3: Exactly. Surviving
1: his wound and ending up writing about it. It, it really is amazing. Um, you mentioned working for the federal workforce. I have a lot of students here at East Carolina University who uh, study public history and are interested in uh, careers in history, not necessarily teaching. Uh, it, it's a a challenging field to get into uh, higher education certainly but a lot of them are interested in archival work Uh, what was your story how did you get to the National Archives
3: well I had um, I relocated to the area for my husband's work um some, like I said, 20 years ago, so mm-hmm. my fir- I had an entry-level job when I first came here at um, the College Park facility, mm-hmm. so I joined the agency as a microfilm camera operator. I did have some photography background, mm-hmm. and um, in that position, they gave us document handling, imaging training, and we learned about the records because, of course, we were just handling the records on a daily basis there. Um, as we microfilm them Mm -hmm. and it was a really interesting place to work because you interacted with all the archivists who were directing the projects and you also worked with all the conservators who were preparing the records for imaging so I learned from every person along the way and um, I learned a lot about project management um, which kind of prompted my next move I went to the office of the archivist in the United States and I served not under this current administration, but the previous archivist. And I was a special assistant. And because I had spent a lifetime doing research, and it was just a love of mine, many of my assignments um, were dependent on research and the records there. Because every time a visitor came by, we would try and um, to show them a personal connection to history and show them the importance of what we were doing there. And I always say, if you can connect someone's personal history to the history, the big picture history, that, you know, you can finally get them to understand why why we do what we do. Exactly. Um, and the archivist um, eventually ended his time there, and um, I was able at that point to move back to a records unit. And so I started with the 19th century military records unit, who, like I said previously, was just beginning to kind of figure out how we approach this thing called digitization. And um, so I was really fortunate to be in on the ground floor and kind of put right. together some of the procedures for this.
1: So if, if a young person today thinks that's what I want to do, I want to end up in Washington, in National Archives in some area, what... what what do they need to do now in terms of training, or what What do you look for? Did, do you see new people coming in, and how How are they prepared?
3: Well, you know, my, my degree was journalism because, of course, like mm-hmm. I said, I loved the storytelling aspect of history. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see others coming in specifically with that degree anymore. It's mostly library science. Hmm. Um, And in particular, you know, we're close by to the University of Maryland, which has an excellent program in that. Um, Mm -hmm. So that would be the direction that I send anyone who asks me, you know, Mm -hmm. what would be the best degree to have coming in. So I wish I could just, go back and do that yeah. <laughs> all again, but I feel like I'm kind of too far down the road. <laughs>
1: well, but looking at all you've accomplished the things you get to do every day, I know that, that you, know, you started out talking about uh, how, how your day is divided among different tasks and that, again, drawing on my museum experience, I recall that... When the museum's working right, it's a seamless operation. People from the outside think, you know, well, what does he do all day? You know, Just dust off the bust of Lincoln and take a six-hour lunch? I mean, what, what no. is there to do? Uh, there's so much to do in an archive or a museum. Uh, but no two days are the same, I suppose.
3: No, I mean, some of the tasks obviously are, you know, if you're looking at, for example, Civil War widow's pensions, there's $2.8 million files in that series. <laughs> so it does to some degree feel like, you know, until you hit a Walt Whitman letter, right, it seems like uh-huh. every file is going to be about the same. Um, but it's, it's always about what do I have to do today? What do I have to have ready before tomorrow? And every, every step in the workflow has to be kind of synced up because if one step lags behind, production can kind of stop dead in its tracks. Um, So to some degree, like that 500-page file that looks so intriguing, you know, you know if you read it, there's probably a great story there. But there are some times where you just have to uh, do the basics and keep moving um, because that's what services the researcher. So we keep our eye on the ball.
1: Well, you do a wonderful job, and you and your colleagues and the National Archives are a priceless resource for everyone listening to the show, whether we work there ourselves or visit there ourselves or read the books that are produced by people using that research. Uh, So I thank you for being on the show tonight, but thank you for the work you're doing especially. It's it's really uh, uh, deeply appreciated, and uh, I look forward to getting a chance to get out there sometime and, uh, and visit visiting with you in person again. But thanks for being well, yeah, on the show tonight. We, we look
3: forward to having you in D.C. sometime soon. Thank you so much for inviting us, and uh hope we'll do it again sometime.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil
0: War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.